All right. Well, good morning. morning. Glad to be with you this morning, as always. uh, My name is Tad Anderson, and uh, I am the lead teaching pastor here at Mosaic Church, and so we welcome you. If I've not met you, I would love to do that, and uh, I will sneak out of the sanctuary a secret way so that I can catch you on your way down the breezeway. So um, I look forward to learning your name and meeting you. I just have a few announcements uh, hey, the first one, I didn't have this in my notes, but didn't my wife do a great job with the video announcements this week? I thought that was awesome. Thanks, Amy. She's like mortified. All right. Uh, first of all, um, last week, Yvette Beam came and told us about a great opportunity called uh, Adopt a Resident. So if you weren't here, it's a, it's a really great gospel uh, opportunity right in our community. Actually, not even uh, five minutes from our church building. If you're not familiar with Crestview Manor, it's it's um, right in the center of town, and it's uh, it's I think it's a, a county-funded like low-income nursing home essentially. And so, uh, as Yvette mentioned, most of the residents who are there uh, have no family, and if it were not for uh, the manor, they would be homeless. And so, uh, they have a program now that they're trying to start called Adopt a Resident, where you can go and uh, link up with one of these sweet folks and just be a friend to them, Uh, spend some time talking with them or playing a card game or helping them organize their their little living area that they have there in their room. And uh, simple things like that done consistently will show that someone loves them and cares about them, which is a great opportunity then to share the good news of Jesus the one who loves and cares for them more than anyone else and who does desire a relationship with them more than just for an hour or a week or so, um, but for eternity. Uh, And so, uh, as I'm sure you can imagine, this is the kind of hope that many of these residents are lacking and that they are in need of of hearing about. And so, if this sounds like something that you would be interested in committing yourself to, to serving the least of these, uh, as it were, in our community, uh, you can connect with Yvette Beam uh, about that, or just stop by our connection desk on the way out, and we will get you uh, connected with her and get you set up to do that. So, uh, the next thing is our fall schedule. Just want you to know we do have one. I think it's actually up here this week, and there it is. All right. Last week, I said it, and y'all were like, I, what? Is there a schedule? Like, anyway, there's a schedule, and uh, so that's good. And uh, the first uh, event on that schedule is our night of prayer uh, coming up on the 28th at 6 p.m., and uh, it's really simple. We're going to come together in this room, and we're going to pray together. Uh, and so we've, we've done this before. If you've been here before, it'll be very similar, but uh, essentially, uh, our elders will lead us uh, in that, and we'll be praying for things, you know, like that the scriptures tell us to pray about the state of uh, the world, the future of our church, and specific things in our lives individually uh, that we may be dealing with. And the time uh, of guided prayer will last about forty to forty-five minutes, and uh, afterwards uh, we'll just have a time of fellowship with one another. So, uh, full transparency: this is usually one of our lowest attended events uh, of the year. Um, but it's probably one of the most important things that we can do together as the church. Um, There are great promises for those uh, who would pray, like in Philippians chapter 4, where it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If that's something you need, it's something I need, I saw bet something you need, then commit yourself to come and pray with us. We'd love that. Um, the last thing is um, we have a four-week gap between Romans and, and Advent at the end of the year, uh, and so we want to do something new and poll you guys and ask you what you want us to teach about. We're going to have a new sermon series. I think it'll be about three weeks long uh, called What Do Christians Think About blank? So you tell us. Uh, what do you want to know? Uh, what Christians think about that thing. So uh, tough doctrines, uh, current cultural things, obscure passages of Scripture, uh, whatever you got, we'll have a form online on our Facebook page uh, as well as our app, and you can submit those requests to us. Uh, Our elders will will filter through those things. We're hoping that we'll see some consistency. Maybe there's some things that a lot of you are thinking about that you'd like to hear uh, me, 
wrestle with <laughs> uncomfortably up here uh, from the Bible, and, uh, and I will do that So for those three weeks. So uh, yeah, I think it's going to be a fun time, and uh, yeah, we all have questions, and the Bible has answers, so we want to reiterate that for those three weeks. So I hope you'll participate in that. All right, uh, well, let's get back to Romans 8. If you're just joining us, uh, or you need a bit of a recap, the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 has been elaborating on the incredible realities of life in the Spirit. So to sum it up, God has graciously done everything for us. God has done everything for us, beginning with uh, the condemnation, not of us, though we deserved it because of our sin, okay, but instead the condemnation of sin itself in the body of Christ on the cross. So we were enemies of God, the scriptures say, uh, and when we would have never sought to change that on our own, or uh, even if we had sought it, not been able to change on our own, Christ died for us to make us righteous by bearing the punishment for all of our sin, past, present, and future on the cross. And in turn, God the Father adopted us into his eternal family as sons and daughters, and then he did this mind-boggling thing to ensure that we would uh, be able to progressively and practically become who he had already made us to be positionally in Christ. Okay. He poured his Holy Spirit into our hearts. The third member of the Trinity who uh, mightily raised Christ from the dead, now living inside of all of us who have placed our faith in Jesus and in the Holy Spirit's new residence in our hearts, he's setting things straight in there, right? Because uh, when we were born again, we realized our life before Christ was a mess, right? And he's giving us new everything. From our identity as children of God, he is infusing into our hearts and minds a new way of seeing the world now through God's Eyes, so that we will naturally produce the good fruit of Christ himself. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And he's giving us a new reflex for getting rid of sin. Because we're new people, we have new spiritual power and new godly priorities. And we don't have the desire or the time to fool around with the stupidity of sin anymore. Amen. All right, so, uh, so we kill it. <laughs> That's what the scripture says. We put sin to death. That's where we left off last week. Uh, but at the end of our text, we saw that Paul was beginning to kind of get off into a, a bit of a natural digression. He, he said that uh, in the end, when Christ returns, we will be glorified with him. And that's exciting news. But in the meantime, it's going to mean suffering with him, he says. And that kind of Christian suffering really fits into two categories, okay? Uh, the first category is the suffering that we endure because of Christ as we battle our own sinful flesh and kill our own indwelling sin. And while that is uh, certainly the right and necessary thing to do, it can be a painful thing to do. Anybody? Yeah. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, that he dies every day, right? That he dies every day. That's the life of a believer because they are daily taking up their cross and dying to themselves so that they can live for Christ instead. But the other category is just kind of a more general suffering, uh, the suffering we experience in this broken world. Obviously, uh, these things are not fun either. Christians, uh, for full clarity, Christians are not masochists who enjoy the pain of suffering, okay? Um, however, Christians are people who even in the midst of suffering, have the deeply comforting presence of Christ always with them by the Spirit, okay? As well as a new understanding of what is actually going on in this crazy world around us. It's getting crazier all the time, uh, it seems, and we're not surprised, church, are we? We shouldn't be surprised, uh, we've been given divine wisdom in the Word of God as to why this life is the way it is uh, and the hope of a day 
when God will restore all things back to his glorious design once again, where he'll make all things new. And that's uh, what our text will be getting at today. So let's read it, and uh, we'll then pray for the help of the Spirit to illuminate what our text is saying, and then we're going to do our best to apply it. As always, we'll start a little ways back for context. Our main focus today uh, will be Romans 8, verses 18 through 23, but I'm going to start reading uh, in verse 14. Here's what it says. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Father, as we do each and every Sunday, we, we come to you first and foremost in awe and with thanksgiving for Christ Jesus and all that you have given him to be for us. Our propitiation, yeah, the, the full sacrificial payment for our sin, as well as our perfect righteousness by which we can now stand with humble confidence before you as your beloved, blood-bought children. And God, now as we enter into the next passage of Romans 8, my prayer is that by your Spirit, you would open our eyes and help us to behold the incredibly amazing things that have been revealed to us about the temporal nature of our suffering in this life, but more importantly, God, about the things that you say are so good and so beautiful, the mind of man has never even been able to fully conceive of them. And I, I pray that through this passage today, faith is strengthened and gospel hope is galvanized for the sake of our continued endurance as we groan inwardly with eager longing for the day that Christ returns to make all things new. As always, would, would I decrease, Lord, and love and trust for you increase through the proclamation of your word for your glory and for our joy. It's in your beautiful name I pray. Amen. Well, let me begin by saying that while this is a passage about suffering... Paul does not allow us to get down into a sad frame of mind over suffering here. There, there are texts where uh, he does get into the nitty-gritty emotions that accompany prolonged seasons of pronounced suffering, but this text is not one of them, okay? And it's not that he's unaware of the pains of suffering. Paul is a man who has been beaten Sorry, beaten, beaten, stoned, <laughs> whoops, uh, shipwrecked, arrested, imprisoned, and who will eventually be beheaded simply for taking the gospel of God's grace to the world. Okay? So Paul is no stranger to pain and suffering. What he's doing in this passage is really helping us to interpret suffering rightly through the lens of the overarching gospel narrative of Scripture, so that when we experience suffering, our response is not one of being dejected 
or disappointed with God or taking up a, a poor, pitiful victim mentality, but rather of taking it in stride and continuing on in the humble confidence that we now have as God's children and fellow heirs with Christ of his coming kingdom. Okay. This is Paul's goal, and so it's my goal for us today as well. That said, I'd like to begin with a question for you that I'll address by the end of the sermon. The question is, have you ever found it peculiar that the natural arc of stories throughout history, okay, as a modern example, think like Disney movies, but even, you know, movies for older audiences, okay, the natural arc of stories, no no matter how convoluted the the twists and, and the turns of the plot may be, they always end up in a very predictable way That could be summed up like this. And they lived happily, what? Ever after. Right. I knew you knew that. It's so predictable. It's so predictable. We likely go into movies these days uh, wondering about how it's all going to unfold and and looking forward to the, the, the unknown elements of it, but subconsciously not wondering what the ending is going to be, just wondering how the ending is going to be what we already know it's going to be, right? Okay. And the reason I pose that question is because for the realists in the room, sometimes there can be a bit of an inward eye roll at the conclusion of some story we've either read or watched because it just feels so unrealistic, right? It just feels unrealistic when compared to real life, Like, of course, the underdog overcomes impossible odds and becomes the star player who wins the game, right? Of course he does. Of course, the hero who we thought was conquered by evil makes an unexpected comeback and defeats the villain, saving the day, right? Of course he does. Of course, the unlikely suitor with a less than appealing exterior has a wonderful personality, and wins the heart of the girl who then dumps the handsome and strapping young guy who's actually a jerk. (laughs) But we know that's not usually how it works in real life, right? Real life, we think, is often way less than ideal. It's hard. And if it's predictable, then it's predictable in the opposite direction with letdowns, and problems left unresolved. And so the first thing that I want to draw out of our text this morning is a challenging truth. It's it's not very popular in the world today. It's It's growing less and less popular, even in many churches concerned primarily with keeping their numbers up. Okay, And it comes from verse 20. So let me read that to you again. In verse 20, he says, For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Let me paraphrase that in the simplest, most straightforward way that I can. Life is painful and difficult on purpose. Life is painful and difficult on purpose. Paul is telling us, that the reason for a lot of the harsh realities of life in a broken world, the struggles, the letdowns, the seemingly senseless and meaningless pain and difficulty that always has a way of kind of cropping back up, it is God's doing. It's God's doing. He subjected the creation to futility on purpose. He meant to. The reason the stuff of life has a way of of not working like we wish it it would is because God jammed it up. (laughs) You seeing this? God jammed it up, or to use biblical language, he placed it under a curse. 
Let me take you back to where that happened. Since I'm willing to bet many of us don't think much about this reality, sure, we might know that uh, the world has been broken by the effects of sin, which is an impersonal way of seeing brokenness, but I think we are less likely to think about the more personal, intentional consequences of sin. But Paul reminds us of God's fatherly discipline that was laid out as the result of the fall of Adam and Eve, and thus all humanity into sin. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, here's what it says. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, that is Satan, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made Adam, made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So, to sum this up, as a result of Adam and Eve's sin, God puts a curse on the most fundamental aspects of human existence. Okay? Instead of the beautiful picture of creation that we see in Genesis 1 and 2, where everything is undeniably good and just works without a hitch, now, while children are still a great gift and joy, having them is going to hurt. And it's not always going to go smoothly. Now, while God still makes provision for us through our work, our work is going to often be physically, mentally, and even emotionally taxing. Perhaps frustrating, not yielding the results that we so desire. Now, while the creation retains much of its natural beauty, it's not going to be easily submissive to human dominion, as was God's original intent. Listen to what Kent Hughes says, how he describes this. He says, Creation became a sufferer, and now, at times, the forces of nature seem to work against themselves as well as against man. Everywhere, our eyes meet images of death and decay, the scourge of barrenness, the fury of the elements, the destructive instincts of beasts, the very laws which govern vegetation, everything gives nature a somber hue. The animal world was invaded by fear and violence. The loveliest scenes in nature, while remaining beautiful, are also witness to bloody horrors. Floods, hurricanes, droughts, tornadoes, blights, avalanches, and earthquakes stalk the earth. And on top of it all, mankind's abuse exacerbates the disharmony. I have lived where the air is too polluted to comfortably breathe, and a walk on the beach coats one's feet with tar. It's probably true that if mankind goes its way unhindered, the last man will stand at the edge of a petroleum-clogged sea while behind him rise the twisted skeletons of his great cities." And finally, perhaps the most difficult part of all that we read in Genesis chapter 3, you're like, that was bad. Yeah. The most difficult part of all that we read in Genesis 3 is that now, while life, by God's grace, still has its high points, 
joys, excitements. It is going to always be fraught with the sad reality that all good things must come to an end. Bodies, human bodies, created for endless enjoyment and pleasure, now get hurt, break down over time, grow sick, and eventually die. Every single person that we hold most dear and cannot bear to consider letting go of will at some point close their eyes and it will be the last time. Our parents, siblings, our spouses, our children, and our friends one day are going to have the life leave their body and they'll be buried in the ground. And as difficult to accept as this can be, it's true. Creation has been subjected to futility, not willingly, but by him who subjected it. That him is God. That him is God. And as hard as that is, the good news is that while God has placed the creation under a curse, the curse was not a haphazard shattering of his creation and sinful anger without concern for its future trajectory. Okay. But rather, quite the opposite. As I already mentioned, God's curse on creation was the very intentional discipline of a loving father who knew that there were some lessons that his children would only learn the hard way. And so the first purpose for why God would ordain the suffering of pain and difficulty in life by cursing his own beloved creation is to produce in us a humble reliance upon the grace of God in everything. <laughs> to produce in us a humble reliance on the grace of God in everything. You see, the reason that Adam and Eve chose to disobey God's singular command, there was only one, right? To be clear, one command, they couldn't do that. So the, the reason they chose to disobey God's singular command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was because of the temptation brought to them by God's enemy, Satan, the serpent. The lie was simple, but it was absolutely devastating to the loving relationship between God and man. Here was the lie. Okay, here's the lie. You don't need God. You don't need God. Actually, God won't tell you this, but you can be your own God. And so not only can you take the fruit, but if you don't take the fruit, you're missing out on a level of good that God is keeping from you. This temptation, unexamined, gave birth to pride and a desire for something that does not actually exist. Good apart from God. There is nothing good without God, friends. There is nothing good without God. And no one can be God, except God. But when people try to find good apart from God and to be their own gods, relational strife ensues and life goes the opposite of good. Which was the enemy's plan all along. To steal glory from God by plunging his precious image bearers into the death and destruction of distrust for God. And ever since the fall, mankind has been falling for this very same lie and either seeking to find good apart from God and or attempting to be their own gods. So God's curse on the creation served to amplify the reality 
that we are not God and that we need God desperately if we are to find joy and meaning in life. Okay, So to be clear, you know, sin was already going to have devastating effects on humanity relationally, both with God and, and with one another. It's not as though, um, you know, if God had not cursed the creation, we would all just be fine and dandy, happy as can be in our sin. No. No, we would still be creating just as big of a relational mess. But the curse was actually a gracious means of hopefully driving us to our knees more quickly. For us to realize faster that God is God and that we are not so that we might repent sooner and turn back to him. Okay. I like how C.S. Lewis said this in his book, The Problem of Pain. He says, the creature's illusion of sufficiency must for the creature's sake, be shattered. And this illusion of sufficiency may be at its strongest in some very honest, kindly, and temperate people. And on such people, therefore, misfortune must fall. He's saying that because of the satanic lie of self-sufficiency that has absolutely permeated the wicked hearts of humanity, especially, he says, especially the people who are the most capable of seeming like they have it all together. Bad things, even tragedies short of death, actually happen for their benefit. To jolt us awake to the fact that we are not in control of our own destinies. That there is a God, that we are not him, and so we are in desperate need of his mercy and his grace in everything. Pain and childbearing, constant struggles in our work and the grief of death are meant to produce in us a humble reliance upon the Lord. These innate difficulties that are now woven into the fabric of our existence are meant to drive us into the loving arms of our Father. That we would realize what a fearful thing it would be to go on without his grace and what a beautifully freeing thing it is to live life under his grace. God intends for us to have this realization from our very initial moment of repentance and faith in Jesus, and then for this humble reliance in him alone to continue to grow in us to the point that we will never forget it. Okay, Because to the degree that we realize our need for God, we will stay close to God. And thus, we will be increasingly less likely to stray from God and in turn, less likely to sin against God. Paul says this very thing in 2 Corinthians 12. Listen to what he says. He says, To keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, God had determined to use the Apostle Paul in amazing ways that he did not use anyone else. Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament in terms to individual writings. And so many scholars believe that the thorn in the flesh or the messenger from Satan that Paul refers to was some kind of physical ailment 
pertaining to his, to his eyesight, okay, that likely made life and ministry significantly harder and more complicated for him, all right? And so Paul says, this ailment was intended by God to keep him humble so that he wouldn't ever go astray into thinking that all he was doing for the church was in his own intellect and his own strength. God didn't want him to fall into that. And so God, in allowing this painful difficulty in Paul's life without relief, kept Paul in close reliance upon him all the time. And apparently, if you have a red-letter Bible, you'll know this, Jesus himself speaks to Paul for, for him, but also for our benefit when he says, my grace is sufficient for you. This is Jesus speaking. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What Jesus was saying, which Paul then nails down explicitly, is that strength in the Christian faith is paradoxically produced in the believers who most deeply realize their own weakness and inadequacy. <laughs> and so I conclude from Paul's difficult reference to the fact of Genesis 3 that God subjected the creation to cursed futility, making life in this world more painful and difficult for some very good reasons. The first of which being the production of humility and a desperate reliance upon his grace and everything. But that's, that's only part of it, okay? Uh, there's another reason. This is probably the more obvious one from our, the whole of our text, Okay. Uh, life is painful and difficult as a result of God's curse on creation to remind us, this is number two, to remind us of God's gospel promise to restore perfect order in the universe. Okay. You see, God is so good. God is so good that even from the beginning, written into the language of the curse, he began giving the gospel promise of how he was going to put an end to the curse. <laughs> Written into the curse, he's like, and here's where it'll end. He told the serpent, Satan, that though he had taken his best shot and would undoubtedly now be the evil impetus for much calamity and brokenness in human history, that there is no way, Satan, you dummy, like there's no way. There's no way to ultimately steal glory from God. And that in his own attempt to hurt God, Satan actually was the unwitting dealer of his own demise. Because Satan deceived the woman, God said that now there would be an eventual offspring of woman that would crush his head. Checkmate. And this is God's first mention of his gospel plan for our redemption through Jesus in chapter 3 of the Bible. <laughs> I love that. Like chapter 3, he's like, here's how I'm going to fix everything. Don't get discouraged. Here's how I'm going to fix everything. And in verse 21 of Genesis 3, it says, And the Lord God, I love this part. Please pay attention to this part. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This was the very first blood that was shed in God's creation. It was a sacrifice. How do you get skins without a sacrifice? It was a sacrifice made by God himself. And it was an illusion, not illusion, illusion with an A, a foreshadowing, if you will. Not only to the eventual defeat of Satan, but of the merciful salvation that would be offered to humanity by another sacrifice, this time of God's own son. That by the shedding of his blood, he might clothe Anyone who trusts him with perfect righteousness. That's the gospel. Amen? Amen? And here's where our passage today gets really crazy. 
all right? It's already been crazy, but here's where it gets really crazy. Paul says, even the creation itself is in on all this. <laughs> the creation is in on all this. It knows about all of this. That the, the seemingly inanimate and at times brutal nature around us is actually, Paul says, in this agonizing pregnancy, eagerly waiting for the day that it can burst back into full fruitfulness and life. And that because of this, the creation is actually rooting for us. The creation is rooting for us. Because just like we long for the day of our redemption at the return of Christ, so too the creation longs to experience its true freedom again and to be under the glorious dominion as the children of God. It wants us to be in control of it again. Listen to this passage again. Maybe you didn't see all that the first time. For the creation waits with eager longing. You see that personification? The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's us, okay? For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who had the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Do you see how radically Paul is reframing suffering in this life? Don't forget, this is about suffering. (laughs) Paul is radically reframing and reorienting us to the suffering of this life. He's saying that when we experience the pain and difficulty of life, our hearts and our minds should no longer go into the mode of wallowing in self-pity. That's not where we go anymore. You don't live there anymore. Stop going there, he says. And instead, we should be redirected back to God's promise in Genesis 3 and from there be catapulted, catapulted into longing for the day that the power of the curse is undone. Because Paul says, God has been telling us that from the start. That that day is coming. The redemption of our bodies, yes, but also because of the consequences of sin, because they touch all of creation, the promise of the consummation of the gospel is cosmic in scope. Jesus has promised to make all things new, all things. So I want you to think with me about something for a moment. I told you in the beginning of this sermon, I wondered if you'd ever considered it peculiar that the arc of nearly every good story in history seems to wind up with the same ending, with the characters living happily ever after. The reason I ask if that's peculiar to you is because that has literally never been the human experience. You realize that? That's never been the human experience. From an earthly perspective, the human experience for everyone in history has been eventual disappointment followed by death. There's even a popular saying, life's tough, then you die, right? So like, why are there happy endings? Why are happy endings a thing when they're not a thing? Are you following me on this question? To get off on a side point really quick, the most well-known atheistic thinkers who have so clearly influenced our, our society have had such negative things to say about Christianity. Karl Marx, for instance, said that religion was the opium of the masses, or in other words, that faith was constructed by people to, quote, calm their uncertainty about their role in the universe. 
Can I just tell you, <laughs> the concept of story is a huge problem for that viewpoint. The problem of story is a huge problem for that stance. Not only have stories been ending happily, like forever, but they're filled with other gospel themes too. Underdogs who win everything. Heroes who save. Unlikely guys who get the girl. The problem that that sin creates, repentance, reconciliation. This is the arc, right? Stories written even by non-believers are shot through with redemptive gospel themes. As a human race, we can't help but make stories like this. We can't help but make stories like this because every story is created under the umbrella of his story. Kind of funny, even the word history is his story anyway. (laughs) So even when people try to make stories like outside of that arc, they do try. They just come off as pointless. They just come off as pointless and and not compelling. My point is, follow me, I'm getting there. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has put eternity into man's heart. God has put eternity into man's heart. And the stories of humanity prove it, don't they? Take Disney, for instance, because they're the world's biggest purveyor of stories these days. Our family used to really love Disney. Some of their recent cultural decisions are disappointing, but what I'm going to say still holds true. Disney as a brand is not just making cartoon movies anymore, are they? They're trying pretty successfully to create imaginary worlds that have this like magical happiness to them. (laughs) If you've ever been to Disney World, the actual Disney World in Orlando, you know they literally call it, what? The happiest place on earth. And one year, our family went to Epcot during the Flower and Garden Festival, and it was, man, it was just absolutely stunning to see. Just a a sea of flowers arranged in these huge fields with ponds in the middle and just they create these awesome designs and cobblestone walkways with this amazing shrubbery art on on every side the amount of the workforce it must have taken the skilled workforce it must have taken to pull that off I can't imagine and I will just tell you that on a beautiful sunny day there is just something about it that like resonates with the soul as you take it in This is not my advertisement for for you to go to Disney World, okay? (laughs) Too expensive. That's why we're not going right now. Anyway. (laughs) But it resonates with the soul as you take it. Like, it's surreal, but there's like this part of you that wants to believe that it's real. Right? Like, that what you're seeing is how the creation was like actually meant to be. Obviously, you know, they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to bring to life the, the fantasies of their animated movies that are even more amazing. If you've seen one of their most recent movies, Encanto, you know. Everything inanimate is just, like, alive. Nature and, and this house that they live in is just, like, joyfully with music, just interacting with this amazing family where everyone is happy and they all have special gifts where they they serve the rest of the family in these unique and and helpful ways, which kind of sounds like another family. Kind of sounds like another family, doesn't it? Anyway, here's my point. Disney does not take fantasy worlds too far. Disney doesn't take fantasy worlds too far from reality. Actually, what I would say is that they pour near incalculable resources into creating amazing, magical, happy fantasy worlds and pressing them as far as the human imagination can possibly go only to come up short 
of what's described in Scripture. Paul says in verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. When Jesus comes and makes all things new and finally sets the creation free from its bondage to corruption, you like watching nature come alive and interact with humanity in ways that are fantastical? Disney can't even come close to the reality of the new world. And the reason that all of the stories of humanity are always ending with happily ever after is because deep down the human soul knows that's how it's supposed to end. That's how it's supposed to end. And one day, everything sad is going to come untrue. Everything sad is going to come untrue. And everything right and beautiful and unfathomably amazing is going to become actual, ultimate reality. And we will realize at the return of Christ that happy endings are actually real. But that none of the ones that we came up with could go far enough to touch the one that they were all written out of a longing to experience. And so while Disney is working tirelessly to constantly improve upon the happiest place on earth, Christians know from Romans 8 that there is coming a day when God is going to ensure that the happiest place, sorry, Disney, the happiest place ever conceived of or experienced is going to be his earth. <laughs> Thank you, somebody. Where Christ reigns as the eternal king and everything is as it should be and we all live to worship him in perfect peace, happily ever after. Okay. So the pain and difficulty of suffering this side of eternity is actually supposed to remind us of God's gospel promise to restore perfect order to the universe. And i, I got to go quick here. In turn, this is going to do a couple of things practically, I think. We'll close with these for the sake of application. The first thing I think the reminder of God's gospel promise does is it guards us, sorry, it guards against our formation of idolatrous functional heavens. Okay. Here's what I mean. As sinful human beings, uh, when we're not looking to the promises of Scripture, we'll try to create our own little rendition of heaven right here, right now, with all the stuff that we want or in trying to do all the things that our flesh prompts us to do or attempting to orchestrate all the circumstances of our sinful hearts, right? But the heavens that we create are seriously sad and puny. They're seriously sad and puny compared to the glory of the coming kingdom of God. And so ongoing suffering in this life is a way that God keeps graciously tapping us, tapping us saying, this ain't it, okay? This ain't it. The perfect life with the cars and the house and the kids and the vacations and all the stuff the world says will make us happy if we can get it all into our, our hands. You can pile it up as, as high as you're able to, and it's going to keep coming up empty of the eternal joy that we were created for. Okay. Again, the, the purposeful brokenness of the world maintained by the curse is a gracious thing. It's a gracious thing. Thing. It reminds us that all of, our, all of our longing is actually not for any reality that we ourselves can create. It's for God and for the eternal life with him that's coming at the end of the age. This is why the Apostle Paul warns us in 1 John, sorry, the Apostle John, not the Apostle Paul, Apostle John warns us. He says, do not love the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. 
but whoever does the will of God abides forever. He's saying exactly what we just said, that the stuff of this world will never fulfill you. Only following Jesus in faith can do that. Don't settle for some pitiful, functional heaven of your own lousy design. Look ahead to the glorious new heaven and new earth that God is bringing to us, or we will abide in fullness of life and joy forever. So the reminder of God's gospel promise to restore perfect order to the universe, it guards us against our formation of idolatrous functional heavens. And finally, it cultivates the resilience of faith. The more that we endure suffering in this present time and look ahead to God's promise of cosmic restoration, the more galvanized our faith becomes. Now, I find it interesting, I'll close with this, I find it interesting that there are two reactions to the pain and difficulty of life mentioned in Scripture that sound really similar. These two two ways of responding, they sound really similar, but they couldn't be more different. One that God absolutely hates and one that God seems to commend in our passage this morning. The two responses are grumbling and groaning. Grumbling and groaning. Both are the sound of human discontentment birthed out of suffering, but grumbling is a selfish discontentment with God and that he's not working out your current circumstances the way that you want. (laughs) That's grumbling. Groaning, on the other hand, is faithful discontentment with the present brokenness of the world, knowing and believing that God is going to bring it to an end and deeply longing for that day to come. You see the difference? Grumbling reveals a lack of faith. Groaning strengthens genuine faith. Grumbling is done out of spiritual apathy. Groaning is done out of spiritual eagerness. Grumbling resents suffering. Groaning rejoices in suffering. And the knowledge that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. That's Romans 5. This may not be the way you expected to hear this sermon end, but to all of my brothers and sisters in Christ today, I commend groaning to you. (laughs) I commend groaning to you this morning. Because groaning, we see in our passage, is the sound of people who know that life is painful and difficult for a purpose. The purpose of producing in us a humble reliance upon the grace of God and everything, and the purpose of reminding us that God's gospel promise is to restore perfect order to the universe when Christ returns. Let's pray. Father, you are incredible. Your word is so good. I confess I struggled long and hard with this text, not knowing what to do with it this week. But God, you always have something very intentional, very practical, very important for us to hear and apply to our lives. God, we groan under the reality that you have subjected the creation to futility. It's often painful, and it makes our lives more difficult, but we rejoice and we praise you for it. Because for those who have come to know and love you, it's likely that a part of that impetus was the pain and brokenness of this world. It pushed us down to our knees. And it lifted our eyes to see you, to see Christ and all of his love and grace that he offers to us in the gospel. And so we thank you for that. I pray that we would be a people who don't grumble when things don't go our way when the brokenness of life seems to keep cropping back up. That we, but we would be a faithful people who groan with eager expectation for what we know is coming. The cosmic consummation of the gospel where Jesus makes all things new. 
Would you make these realities real to us, God? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.